Hello, welcome to the Daily Cron for, for Thursday, February 21st, 2019. I'm Stephen Tolton. Today is Throwback Thursday, and because I happened to go down to campus today for the day job, I figured it's Throwback Thursday, let's talk about Drag and Drop. Drag and Drop is like an application that we developed in my, in my department, man, years and years ago, and I, I can't even remember the exact dates anymore. It was so long ago. I think it was like easily over 10 years ago. <clears throat> but it was down it was back during the first wave of podcasting when iTunes had just recently added support for RSS feeds and like the and the podcast uh and adding podcast I don't even know maybe yeah, I think it had podcasts in there. But uh iTunes U was new and they were pushing that and that was the idea that you could put your videos up on iTunes and then subscribe to them. Uh, we might have even predated that a bit, too, because I remember writing an integration for that later. But anyway, <clears throat> so Drag and Drop originally started as something called like Real, the RMCP, which is like Real Media Conversion Project, I think. And uh, I can't remember who wrote the first thing. It might have been the manager who whose group I ended up in to, who you know, this project. But there was like original one where I think you just put a file into a directory. And if you name the file the right, the right special words, the, some script would would understand what to do and would do some encoding on it, some simple kind of encoding, and then you'd you'd have a new file, and that's it. And it was actually apparently really popular with with uh, professors because it was an automated way of of doing a, a task that was becoming more and more necessary, which was taking like rich media content and like and making it accessible to students in the online systems that were were becoming available, <clears throat> like uh, early Blackboard, for instance. I think so. The Back at this time, I was working in primarily tech support. I was getting bored, and maybe because I was getting bored, or maybe I just got lucky. But I got pulled into a group which was technically in the same tech support department, <laughs> but it was like a a group with a very forward thinking manager who was working on this, and he was always big on on creating like these skunkworks projects. So uh, this was totally run as a skunkworks. We. We're not technically in the same group that did most of the software development. We weren't using the servers infrastructure we had there. We were doing it with commodity hardware, like Dell Towers. And I remember, you know, the first version of this, where we decided we wanted to make it a full-fledged web app. And uh, I think that might be when we called it Drag and Drop. Like, we rebranded it because Drexel's mascot is a dragon. (laughs) You know, it's corny, but it works. So uh, the first version, we wrote it all in Perl, like Perl 5, I guess, 5-something. And uh, my colleague Chaz was the main other developer, and he built the front end, the web interface, all that stuff. And I built the back end and the system that served like the the RSS feeds and the websites. So the idea with this is uh, when it was fully implemented, you're a professor, you have various kinds of rich media, we called it, but think video to start with. You have a video, and you want to make it accessible to other people. So we, you take this video in a variety of formats. Like, we would accept a video in a bunch of formats. And then we would transcode it into things like an MP4 file. I think I said we should always... when M, This is M, when MP4 is pretty new. I was like, let's make sure we always have an MP4. But then we're also doing real media files for most of these. Because we had a streaming server as part of this infrastructure. That's how you stream stuff. You, you couldn't do flash streaming really that well at the time. That was still pretty new, and YouTube had did not exist when we first started this. Um, so you had like a real media streaming server. So we would transcode this stuff, and then you know we would send you an email 
that said, hey, you're done, and here's a link. And then the link would take you to a web page that I generated, and the web page would have all of your content on it and all the different formats. And then each, uh, and then you could also get an RSS feed of the whole thing. Plus, plus, we even linked to the copyright uh, system that you wanted for your content. So uh, if you create a playlist and you said it was like one of the Creative Commons um, copyright uh, you know, licenses, we would link to that. You, like, you could choose in the app when you create it. <clears throat> and then the web interface was actually clunky by today's standards, but not at all clunky by those standards in the early in the 2000s-somethings. We, um, <clears throat> we not only allowed you to up, like, upload these pretty big files, but eventually you were able to eventually you were able to uh list like your playlist as kind of being public or not and then if i remember this correctly then you could like link to other people's playlists you could add them to yours yeah there was like a whole interface where it's like i have a playlist called like like i don't know history 101 videos for you know course you know hist hist 101a or something like that so i had some some videos and then maybe some other professional department has uh, a whole playlist of their own that they created with like historical battles or something. And then you could go into that and link, take those items and add them to your playlist and they would link around. So that way you weren't, you, you know, you could access content that was all throughout the system with, without needing to like obviously upload it again. Uh, and this was all opt-in, this was all, like, all automated. It didn't require us to do things because that, that was one of the problems back in the day was uh, you know, professors would want to get content up there, and then, you know, we would have to, I guess, transcode or something, or they would have to figure out how to do it, put it somewhere. There, there wasn't a system until this. So the first version, as I said, was written in Perl, and like, I had some Linux servers set up, and I had, and I had to build the encoding system. So the way, the way this kind of worked was you'd upload a file to the web interface. It would get put into a share on a particular server, and then I would have a, a, a cron job a Perl script running, they would copy the file from that shared space to another kind of location, and then that location would be uh, be checked by a bunch of Perl scripts running on Windows machines, because that's where our, our coder software was Windows-based, and then those Perl scripts would um, would grab the file, it would be assigned a file based upon... <coughs> right, right, they would be assigned a file. So yeah, so they, it, it would be copied from the front end to, the, to like a back-end like temporary directory, and then I had a script they kind of managed everything. It would pick it, and then depending on how busy the encoders were, and the encoders were would um, you know report back to some central database whenever they were encoding stuff. And I had an algorithm to uh, like a heuristic to figure out how busy I thought they were. And then I had this script that would assign jobs to their queues based upon how busy they were. And then uh, you know the Windows machine would eventually pick up the next the file, do the transcoding, and then copy it back into the right place. And update the database, and then that would, and then that would allow you to have the web page. Because and the other part of it was a web page generator. So you'd go to the playlist URL that got generated, and then there would be a web page and RSS feed and stuff. <clears throat> so the first version was all Perl, and then we had to write it in .NET because <laughs> eventually the Skunkworks thing became unwieldy because it actually got used a lot. And so uh, I guess so we got moved to the department or the part of the department that actually does software development. And then we had to rewrite it to work on the server infrastructure they have, which is all Windows.net stuff, which is a little uh, sad because um, back then the Perl system worked a lot better. It was faster, it was more reliable, it required less resources. It was just a, it was it was a better experience than I think. And you know, but we re rewrote the thing and got it to work, and 
uh, we were pretty much pushing the limits of some of the technologies <laughs> we were using at the time. Because all this stuff is pretty new. Like, <clears throat> like, like RSS was new. Like, I remember reading the spec for, I think, RSS 2. And I, I implemented the spec myself, you know, for the most part. I think there were some libraries I ended up using on the .NET side. But, you know, we st- I still had to add in, you know, features in there. And we, we made sure that we had feeds that would work in iTunes. And we started adding other times. This is back in a time where there was like Web 2.0 was big. There was a huge explosion in these APIs. And there was a lot of these little standards, like uh, especially around RSS. There was all these, comp- these competing standards about how to do syndicated stuff, how to do attachments, like, like MP3 files in there and video and stuff. And so we're playing around with all that stuff. Uh, we also did some really novel things for the time, like we did uh, text-to-speech transcoding. So if you had uh, like lecture notes or, or you know, lecture material, you could put it in there, and then it would transcode it into audio. And then if, if you had uh, you know, visually impaired students, they could listen to the lecture. And we had different voices that you could pick from, too. <clears throat> so that was cool. And I think we had actually different languages. Maybe in there, I mean, it was there was at least different voices, so you could do transcoding of stuff into. I I believe it it understood different languages, so like not all languages, obviously, but like it, it, if it was, I think we could handle English and some other and some uh, as well as some other obvious um, languages, uh, and that was really cool. We also had this feature where if you took like an HTML file, you indexed that HTML, like you made a little website, and you packaged it in a folder the right way and made a zip file and you gave us that zip file, then I would unpack it and make it into a URL in our system. And then it would just work as like a web page. So you could publish a little mini static web page that way. And this was useful because there were certain tools like presentation software and stuff that would make these little um, hyperlinked uh, websites out of it. Or there was uh, things that they would have like embedded movies in them, that kind of thing. Whatever it was, it would all be in this bundle and I would just I did all these checks to make sure that it was it was safe to to publish, but then I would just I I'd put it out there and I'd publish it. <clears throat> and the this system grew and grew and grew though. It started it started using up a tremendous amount of disk space on the servers, <clears throat> and the entire Drexel University library published like pretty much all of their video at one point through this. Like our transcoders were running like essentially twenty four seven all the freaking time when this was happening. I remember looking at the queues and it would just be loads of files getting dumped into this thing all the time, like all day long. And I'd be putting out fires and making and, and fixing downtime. And it was just like, it was a huge deal. <clears throat> and eventually the whole library had, was on the system. It was incredible. <clears throat> and, uh, you know, that means that basically every student at the university touched this system at some point in their career for, for years there, because, uh, uh, everybody was getting transitioned to uh, having a, having an online component to their courses through, I think it was Blackboard at the time too. And, and so every class got one of these online courses. And even though if every class at the time didn't necessarily use it, but every class had it and they start, we started, you know, you, we, we were giving you a link. We were giving you a link to, you know, a web page so you could embed it in your online course materials. So everybody did this. They would take videos, they would take uh, lecture notes, PDFs, whatever, and they would, any kind of rich media. And they'd stick it in the system, and then they'd create their course materials this way and different playlists, and then they would and link those playlists together. Some of these professors had these massive, like, these massive multi-linked playlists. They had more than one playlist, and they'd link from one to the next to the next. So they could break up huge modules this way. And there's just gigabytes and gigabytes of content in here. And everybody was using it, essentially, for a while. And eventually, of course, like all, all types of things like this, 
you know, we we just kind of it kind of petered out. It it, it served its 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 time, and other systems like Kaltura, which I think is what we use now, they they eventually became good enough. Uh, they surpassed our functionality in a lot of ways, and they were commodity. Like like the the, the problems that this solved became problems that that many other off the shelf software products solved. Like the YouTube, for instance, solved better. And so there was there was less and less reason for us to be devoting this because with software, you want to make sure that when you're when you're working on a system, you're devoting a lot of resources that that system is adding value to the core mission of your firm. And at the university, for years, I think we were adding tremendous value to education uh, there because this was the early days of like online education, and and that system allowed students to have access to materials that otherwise they wouldn't have been able to because this was before YouTube even, or and definitely before YouTube became big. <clears throat> and even then, um, a lot of professors didn't want to put stuff on YouTube because uh, it, it it was public, you know, and they wanted to, and we had a mechanism for you to, to make it private. So your students had to know the right password, you know, to get into it. So that way you could have materials that are only available for a term. Oh, I even had a system there where you could set, um, you could set a start and end date for availability of the content. So you could have it only be available during a particular term, and then it would stop being available, and then all the links would stop working. Like, I, I think the system was pretty well designed, you know? Uh, so you could do this kind of stuff. Uh, we even had a mechanism so that you could give, like, a TA access and then take away their access later. And all we did all this stuff because we were lazy, and we didn't want, <laughs> we didn't want to deal with it. We didn't, we didn't want to deal with professors giving us requests to, like, transcode things. We didn't want to have to uh, deal with, setting permissions or something. So we were like, let's automate all the things. And that's what we were doing. But for a while there, this was the key, the key system that even if you didn't realize this is what you were accessing, the, uh, basically the entire student body was accessing this for a while, for years. And that's how they got their, a lot of their content, especially video, but not just video, but audio and even like PDFs and things for class, for course materials. That's, that's where it was. And uh, when we finally turned it off, it was, it was sad in some ways, but also good because at that point I was I was like we, we I was tired of working on it, <laughs> frankly, you know unless we were going to rewrite it or something. And in that case, it, it wasn't worth it because there were better products available by the end. But that's good because it served its its purpose, it added value, and then it was replaced. And that's what software does. So now there's no remnants of it anywhere. <laughs> so it's like it never existed. But that's also something you have to um. Uh, have peace with in software because most of the software is not going to be like the innards of Mac OS or Windows or something where you can maybe your piece of code is going to last for decades or something like that. And most of the time your the stuff you write is it's not going to last that long. If you're lucky it might last for a long time. Um but even if you write it really well it's it's not less necessarily going to last forever. You know, and if you do a product like this, uh, you know, it, it may be be really really important for a few years if you're lucky and then you know it just fades in the memory because something new replaces it uh that's the interesting nature of software it's all very uh fast moving and temporary for the most part and you you have to be you have to be okay with that so later on i um, i would say this experience i had was was one of the best experiences i ever had at drexel and as a developer it was so much fun and we were really just uh running a skunkworks operation, pushing the limits of our knowledge and the technology we had available to us, having fun and adding, I think, really tremendous value to the education of students there. And then later on, I had a very similar experience 
with uh, some of the same people, actually, when we finally got around, we got around to doing the Drexel One mobile app, which is still going on today, and we're still evolving that product. And uh, I'll, I'll leave stories about Drexel One to another day, but it was nice this Thursday, this, this throwback Thursday, to remember, remember my first, like, really big, complicated system that I wrote long, long before I knew how to do any of this stuff properly. Oh man, I cringe at some of the some of the design choices we made. It was all very um like duct tape and and bubblegum kind of thing. But it it was good enough that we actually at one point we were seriously considering trying to commercialize it. And, it, and we never did for various reasons, but a lot of other schools I heard were very interested in it because it, no one else was doing that at the time. Drexel tends to in, in some areas be ahead of the curve. Um we've had some really talented people in my department we built some stuff over the years that and customized do custom versions of things over the years that other universities just don't and sometimes that's good sometimes that's bad <laughs> but in this case i apparently it was pretty impressive and it's it's kind of a shame that it never got commercialized maybe because i feel like we were ahead of the curve enough that if we had we had a chance i think if we had could have developed could have put the energy and money into it maybe we could have turned it into an actual um product and you know, like because we this is way back before this was a common thing to do SaaS products, but you know, into that's like that. There were some out there, but it wasn't like an everyday thing. Like we could have done that. Like we had all the infrastructure. It was a little clunky compared to now, but we had you know all the infrastructure. We could have done a SaaS product internally, but you know, it didn't work out. It wasn't. It, it wasn't. I'm not saying it was the wrong decision to not pursue that, but uh, it's a little. It's a little sad because I, I think it, it had some cool ideas in there that we could have expanded upon, and uh, it, it could have been could have been something cool. But it was still awesome for what it was, and I always remember that time very fondly in my career. And I'm still really good friends with people I worked on it with to this day, and so that's great. So Drag and Drop lives on in that sense, and that I learned a lot from it, and made some friends, and uh, and yeah, so. It, it may not exist anymore, and no one at the university even remembers it at this point, at least not students, obviously, because they've all, multiple ver- generations of them have gone since, the, you know, this thing was decommissioned, but the uh, the DNA of Drag and Drop lives on a little bit, anyway. So that's it. That's it for this Throwback Thursday. It was fun reminiscing a little bit. Uh, I gotta get to bed, because tomorrow is a long day, and I will tell you about tomorrow well, tomorrow. So, until then, see ya.